Hi everyone, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast, Two Pints of Lager and a Spreadsheet. I'm Dave Gibson, I'm here with my co-founder John Dudgeon. Today our special guest is Paul Smith, with too many strands to his bow to describe. On this week's episode we'll be chatting about how people the world over are friendly and helpful. How life is a series of opportunities. And why there is still a place for accelerators in 2023. So, Paul, um, before we did the introduction, uh, one of the things I was scratching my head about before, beforehand was uh, to work out actually how to describe you and introduce you. And I kind of ended up with kind of tall and cheerful, but but there's so much more to you than that. Do you, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself and 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 where you've come from and where you're going to? I'm delighted you used the word cheerful. That's that's probably made my day. Uh, I, I come from Darlington. I'm a Northeast lad. I come from Horton. Um, I spent the first 20 years of uh, life there. It was okay. Um, my mum and dad got divorced when I was about 15. I got really into astronomy. I mean, really into astronomy. I sat my GCSE in astronomy by correspondence course because the internet literally didn't exist. Uh, in 1989, when I was 14, so I was a third year, sat in a uh, school hall of fifth years who undoubtedly wanted to kick my face in. Um, and I went off to the university to do physics with astrophysics in Leeds, a place you know very well, Dave. And I didn't, I didn't stay in my degree. I skipped out. And I just felt like I'd done so much study um, I felt at the time, I think probably as you do, that if you spend a lot of time grafting when you're 18 or 19, like you've missed out on all the other things. And so I left university uh, and I just drifted about in bar jobs and delivery jobs and got into radio. And radio was actually a, a love of mine from when I was sort of 13 or 14. Uh, and I'd done a bit of hospital radio, and there was a new radio station in in Darlington starting called A1FM. So I just hung around long enough until they let me in. And from there, uh, became a presenter and a producer. I joined Metro Radio in 1998, uh, and then TFM um, in 2000. And from there, went to the BBC in 2003 and spent five years at the BBC. And my last job was at um, what is now Real Radio, but was Century. So I was the program director. So I get to say I used to be the boss of Malcolm McDonald, which not a lot of people can say. Um, and that was an amazing time. And so I did 13 years in radio. Is this is this I, I, is this enough detail? Because I can I can go into more detail or less detail. It's fine. It's it's absolutely fine. And if you're going to run over, then uh, we'd be more than happy to invite you back and pick up on part. It's very complicated to see. It's totally class. I want to. Have you met Alan Robson? Never mind Malcolm McDonald. This is our, this is a detail I want to get into. Briefly, I got to meet him when I was at Metro. Yeah, but then he didn't really socialise with anyone else in the station. Uh, oh, okay. very much uh, preferred to flash uh, on his own means um, by himself. Um, so from, from leaving radio, I, I 
I followed uh, a friend, Caroline, she was the marketing director, she left and she went to a startup uh, in Newcastle and I followed her in and did some part-time work and also became a, a sort of a freelance journalist, which had kind of been doing a bit of as well for The Guardian while I was in radio. And all of that came together to start one of the first um, design agencies for apps, for the App Store. So did a bit of that, uh, did a startup and got approached by a guy called John Bradford who had brought the accelerator model of working with early stage tech startups from the US where he'd learned about it at Techstars and he brought it <clears throat> to the UK and it started off, he ran a couple of programs called the Difference Engine, one in Middlesbrough, one in Sunderland. Uh, and then the coalition government came in, the funding models changed in the Northeast, but there was still a real genuine appetite to do more of that kind of thing. And that's um, how Ignite came about in 2011. So I co-founded Ignite, um, worked with lots of teams. We tried to do a lot with that in terms of supporting not just the teams we worked with and the founders we worked with, but the broader ecosystem um, to make sure there was one. And obviously from there, we got into things like Campus North. Um, we got into Tech for Life. Uh, Blue Sky was one of the key sponsors of Campus North back in the day. Thank you very much. Um, and I think after five years, and this happens to everyone who runs accelerators, nobody does it indefinitely. They, they get to a point where it's just incredibly intense and it's very repetitive. And so while every cohort is different and uh, every new founder and startup you meet has its own challenges. It's very hard to do it um, continuously without necessarily a lot of funding. And we we did things pretty lean. We weren't necessarily paying ourselves a lot. And I'd kind of run out of ideas. So I moved on from Campus and Ignite in 2016. And I wanted to do something else, wasn't sure what. Um, it's a bit like accelerators are a bit like... Uh, movie movie roles in that you get typecast quite easily and so i hadn't been an operator hadn't actually worked in a startup or a, actually hadn't had a proper job since radio and that wasn't really a proper job either um so i ended up doing a couple more accelerators moved to dubai more accelerators and then fell in with one of the teams i was working with there called hyperloop one which was trying to take an elon musk idea to put spaceships inside tubes and fire them around the world at the speed of sound um, and got into operations, essentially, which is what anyone who's a generalist will do as a role in a startup, because operations is very much, it's horizontal across the business, it touches everything. It's not a, it's not a sort of ver vertical specialism. And so I did that, did another startup called Ricochet in 2018, uh, with a couple of people I'd worked with uh, in Ignite previously. Um, became a COO of a deep tech Series A scale-up. And then eventually tumbled into what I'm doing now, which is my third startup, which is called Team House. So my, my career is pretty much a, a church tombola of just bits and pieces. You can buy a raffle ticket, but you'll get some rubbish if you, if you win. Um, it's just a mess. It all sounds very bland and boring, Paul. Um, <laughs> Um, yeah, I was going to pick up on, first of all, on the journalism uh, side of things, your, your journey into radio, and it, it's it's obvious that, um, you know, you have a love of the spoken word, but a love of the written word as well. 
Yeah, and so my one of my first proper jobs in radio was actually as a copywriter. So I worked at Metro Radio in Newcastle as a copywriter for three years, for for two years, and then at uh, TFM for three years. Uh, so I got to work on a lot of stuff that people of a certain age would know, like Frank's Factory Flooring and Bell Stores and lots of... I, I have to put my hands up. I didn't write them. I managed the team that did. And we were this little scrappy team from uh, Teesside in the end, and we won all the awards. We beat um, Saatchi in awards time and time again. I think we did the first ad campaign with Johnny Vegas. Um, it was an absolute joy, and it still is in, in writing. It's, I think, it, interestingly, as a, as a copywriter, you learn a discipline because you have to, you've, you've got finite time. You've got sometimes some very, um, not just, not just selling messages to get across, but concepts. So you'd learn to use words quite carefully and you learn as well, what words go together and how you get a, a cadence and a rhythm out of, out of writing. Cause the things you're writing are spoken out loud. And so I, I learned a lot of discipline from that. And that actually, that discipline, led into other interesting places like investigative journalism. So I got to do that for a few years. Um, and I got to write a lot um, for The Guardian uh, on radio, but also on tech. So yeah, I absolutely adore writing. I, I enjoy doing it when I have the time. It's very involved though. And I'm not somebody who can rattle out thousands of words a day. It's more like hundreds and I will agonize over them. Um, so yeah, but it's it's a love and I've, I've been fortunate enough to to make a living out of writing not only as a, a journalist um uh but also as a travel writer as well for a time yeah um so you you, you obviously do have a love of, of travel so um despite having spent some time in in the center of the universe um in leeds which i'm sure you uh, astronomy <laughs> gcse would have, would have said it and, and i believe you went back there with the bbc for a little while as well yeah, 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 I was right. there, for, yeah. there for a year working, yeah. working at BBC. But, but, but you have moved further afield from Darlington than, than Leeds. Yeah, um, I lived in Dubai for a year. Um, when I worked for, for Hyperloop, um, I spent a lot of time in Los Angeles, very fortunate to do. Also a lot of time in Saudi Arabia and got to visit places like Mexico City and Oslo and, and travel the world. And I've been really really fortunate that I've been able to satisfy that wanderlust that some of us have. And I've been really fortunate that because I'm largely unemployable, I've had to find other ways to make money, but it's meant I've often had really flexible uh, schedules that have allowed me to, to work from elsewhere in the world. And so I've really taken advantage of that. And interestingly, I never, I never got to talk to my dad about it. He passed in 2011 and we hadn't talked for a few years beforehand, but it's only after he passed, I realized when I went through some of his um, belongings, I'd forgotten he'd been in the Navy for, for, for near 12 years. And he had traveled to a lot of the same places and he'd enjoyed it as much. We never got to share that. Um, so I think that definitely comes from my, my dad's side. That's cool. You managed to <clears throat> combine your, 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 your love of writing with your love of travel. Um, in uh, Twitch Hiker. So where did that idea come from? What sort of did it out and, and talk us through the experience? Twitch Hiker now is 14 years old, which is wild because it feels like, like five years ago. Uh, so 2009, Twitter had been about a couple of years. Um, 
and the idea came um i just got married in new york like five days beforehand and i was hung over in the old gateshead tesco so not the new shiny one they've got now but the really knackered one um which was in the the shadow of the get carter car park and i was really hung over and i was a bit sad uh, i spent a lot of time in my 30s in new york i spent like nearly a year of my 30s in new york despite never living there um and i was really sad to be home and i remember getting very frustrated at people who were just idling about who'd gone to the supermarket to chat rather than shop um and i remember the thought of just i just what can i do where can i go and how can i get there and by the time i got to the checkout i thought actually and i was tweeting about the frustrating frustration as i went along by the time i got to checkout it's like i wonder twitter's really interesting could i use it just to lean on people not not for too much but just one at a time to give me a lift somewhere or sleep on a couch i wonder how far i could get if i did that because it it would mean i'm i'm not engaged anymore which uh, which, you know, often in life we all find ourselves hoping for. Um, and that was it. I literally went home and left the shopping out and sat down instead and decided to try and bash out some rules for this thing I'd invented in the freezer section of Gateshead, Tesco. Um, so, yeah, that's where it came from. And it, it worked. I, I got to travel to Stewart Island, which is a little island off the south coast of the southern island of New Zealand. So the plan was... I would try and get to the opposite side of the world from, from Gateshead in 30 days, relying on the goodwill of people I met on Twitter. So that meant some people bought me train tickets and plane tickets, and some people would give me a lift in their car, and some people put me up in a hotel for a night, and some people put me in their spare room for a night. And just, just, just managing to crowdfund, essentially, a way around the world and raise money for charity uh, at the same time, and it was it was just really exciting. Um, and I, I I think looking back, I didn't make the most of it because at the time, I was a freelance writer, and they didn't get paid a lot then. They probably get paid nothing now. Um, and so I was trying to work while I did it, and so I probably didn't make the most of that opportunity. But six months later, I got approached and asked if I wanted to write about it. So I I wrote a book, and it was a, a bestseller in India. <laughs> and Taiwan and other interesting places. Paul, one of the things, um, I'm, off, I'm not as well traveled as you, and one of the things I'm really interested in when I speak to someone who, who, who is, or I hear someone on a TED talk, they always talk about, you know, people across the world and how generally we're just very helpful. Um, you know, we want, we want to work together, collaborate, and, you know, all those sort of, um, boundaries that you see on the news and everywhere else are just they don't really exist in in reality is that something that you sort of found on with your experiences as well yeah and I remember writing it it's in like the, the the penultimate page of the book is I think and I to be fair I'm I'm reasonably well traveled I'm not very well traveled there's still there's still continents there's, you know, that I've never been to and not really interested in going to but I think <laughs> what, I think, what I realized was that when you think about the concept of news, whether it's a newspaper or 24-hour news, the concept of news is something new that is happening. It's something that wasn't happening and now is. And so it's, it's, it's almost a measure of what's abnormal in the world, what's changed. And that's why, actually, a lot of news, when we see it, it's bad. 
it's because actually the vast majority of the world is good and actually everything's okay in it. And we get this little window now and again into what is what is abnormal in the world. And it's it's often bad news. But I think to that point, you go around the world and actually nobody is wanting to fight you and nobody is trying to steal your jobs and nobody, everybody just wants to get along and and get on with life and make the most of what they've got. And some people have more than others and other people would like more. And But everyone generally, I think I realized there's, there's bad everywhere. And I think I think increasingly we for a long time were isolated from that in the UK. I, I remember when I started traveling elsewhere to sort of to, to Asia and Africa and, and you find people begging by the side of the road and you find the fact that no one can keep the lights on. And I remember thinking in that sort of that superior smug way that thank God I come from a proper country, you know, where we've got electricity all the time and we we're not starving. And then you look at the last seven or eight years of what has happened and you realize, no, actually, the UK is corrupt. It's leaving people to starve and fend at food banks. Uh, we're pumping out raw sewage. We uh, have people freezing to death. And you realize, actually, we're no different. And I think I saw a lot of that in my traveling, um, that actually everywhere is broken, but fundamentally in very different ways. And there are certain places which have a stigma attached to that and places that don't. So a, a good example, and um, broadly speaking, I, this isn't meant to offend you, John, but broadly speaking, we're all of a similar age. Um, <laughs> but I think because of a song like Band-Aid, we all assume that Africa, first off, is a country. Um, that takes a long time to knock out of people. But secondly, <laughs> starving or in a famine or doesn't have roads or you know what I mean and, and that does happen absolutely but it happens everywhere in the world um, but that I think colors our view to such an extent that we are actually surprised when we go somewhere else and there is first world infrastructure and they do have mobile phones and actually it's it's not that different to, to where we live so so yeah that was a very long answer to that question John but yeah, the, the world is, is just very similar wherever you go. It's just different flavors and tones and shades and languages. That's cool. Um, from a, as an early adopter of uh, Twitter then, um, do you feel social media has, has changed? It, it seems to me to be a platform for everybody to hide behind the curtains and shout angrily at each other these days, unless yeah. you're publishing pictures of cats. That's and dogs. Um, yeah. That's exactly what it is. And that's what it's brilliant for, just pictures of good dogs. And maybe, cats, but less about cats. Yeah, I think. Oh, this is a it's a big topic, isn't it? I think the challenge is that, on the one hand, everyone has the right to an opinion, and the right to be heard. But what social media's done is, it's given all of those opinions equal weight, and so you now have you now have, and it, it's it's. You now have things happening like Radio 4 inviting on astronomers and scientists to debate with people who think the moon is fake or the earth is flat. And these people are giving the, the same platform, the same waiting as the person who spent 10 years getting their doctorate and 10 years working at NASA. And, and then you've got 
Billy from Saltwell, who who was given this afforded the same credentials and the same platform. It's wild, and that I think is the how it's changed massively. In that, if people aren't heard, they complain, but they then mistakenly think that what they have to say um, matters as much in the sense that it should be considered as factually correct as actual facts. Um, and there's this conflation, massive conflation of objective opinion and uh, objective fact and subjective opinion, and it happens all the time. And I think that's that's the challenge. At the same time, I think just zooming out a bit, reading a really interesting book by a guy called Ray Dalio about the cycles that society goes through of um, war and great devastation, which leads to unity, which ends up to leading to financial challenges around overspending and overborrowing because confidence is high, which starts leading to populism, which starts leading to war, which, and it all comes around and goes around and everything, although we're seeing it for the first time expressed in these global platforms, it, it's kind of, it's already happened before. And We've, we've seen it before. In, in the last hundred years, we've seen what happens when people think they aren't heard and when people manipulate those feelings and create populist movements. We've seen, the world's seen that, and it's, it's kind of happening again. I guess it's kind of human nature, as yeah, much as anything absolutely. else, and, and, and always has been. Um, to, uh, to move away from that cheerful topic then, um, and put you back in your accelerator pigeonhole um so you know ignite was uh absolutely revolutionary um, really certainly to us um back in the early days but uh, accelerators have changed drastically since then and i guess the, the change has been exacerbated by by lockdown worldwide um as well um now how do you see what changes have happened there and are they for the better or are they for the worse uh i remember I remember talking about it probably 2013 or 2014, and there might have been a, a post or two about it, is that I, I could see at the time that accelerators would stop being programs, but just become processes. And because they embodied everything around lean methodology and and testing and iterating ideas. And um, and and so that, that knowledge has become widespread. So, so is there a need actually yeah, they're still really helpful because despite all the knowledge and information on the internet, people still make massive mistakes when starting businesses and it helps to have a lighthouse that can attract people in and help them understand. And I think that's, so in that sense, Ignite very much still has a place in what it does. It, it kind of, it's still there. It's very visible. Uh, and by being visible, it brings in people with interesting ideas and helps them understand the processes and the tools they need. Um, are there too many? Probably. But then that's not necessarily a bad thing. The, 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 the bad thing about accelerators is they've also been manipulated um, by people who, who aren't actually very good at them. And so they've been used to take huge swathes of equity um, from cap tables of founders, and it's essentially killed businesses before they've even got started, or they've just poorly advised them. So, so there's still it's still a place for the process, I think. Um, and I think still, I mean, in terms of what's happening in uh, Newcastle, in terms of Ignite being part of a broader strategy, 
to help just raise that bar and, and help people understand how to build businesses, that absolutely makes sense. So there's still, still a place for that kind of thing, I think. Yeah, I'm sure that, you know, that just the getting together and the collaboration side of things um, is still just as relevant today as it, as it always has been. I think I think today Ignite are, um, are kicking off their mentor madness day, which I've um, uh, been lucky enough to observe when uh, um, it went on in Manchester a few years ago. Um, are you in, are you involved in in Ignite still, Paul, or kind of what, what's happening there? Yeah, I've been really fortunate enough to still get involved as a as a mentor and entrepreneur in residence since since I left. Um, and it, but but not just not just ignite. I've been fortunate enough to work with TechStars and um, NDRC in Dublin, and and generally anyone who asks. And I think <laughs> that's and, and and sometimes I've been fortunate enough to get paid for it. If it's sort of if you're helping every week, um, and then there's other times when you don't, when you just turn up and have an opinion and, and leave again. Um, I, I I I don't see that going away. It's it's. I don't think the founders realize when they're talking to me how much I'd get out of it just in terms of their energy. It's infectious. And you've probably seen the same when you've talked to yeah. cohorts of teams. It, you just get so much out of it. So genuinely, for the last, since I left Ignite, I've operated open office hours. Um, and I talk about them from time to time on LinkedIn. There's a pinned post on my Twitter account, which anyone can just book and turn up and chat whether I know them or not. And I enjoy that because I get exposed to so many different ideas, which makes your head go, but it's just infectious. And I think that the least we can do is, is just play to that adage of the rising tide floats all boats. I've been fortunate enough, not just through tech, but through my journalism and through my radio to have people who've gone out of their way to help me or support me or give me advice without asking anything in return. I think that's the least we can do once we've got further up the ladder is to just reach back down and help people up. Yeah, you must have the world's biggest little black book um, there, Paul. No, I don't. And, 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 Dave. I don't yeah. keep notes on any of it. <laughs> In, your In your head. Uh, many, um, many, many, many good friends and and, and good associates. And uh, yeah, a collection of people who must have helped you along the way. Yeah, loads, loads. I used to, I used to be able to used to be able to name them, but even little things, people helping in small ways can make big differences. So I think I've just seen it. I've seen it throughout. I can, I can, I know the reason I got into radio. I know the one person who sort of gave me a job when I was knocking endlessly at the door in Darlington and couldn't get in. I know the person who gave me my first break in proper radio, Paul Carter, uh, who's still around in, in Newcastle. Uh, he got me into Metro. Um, Sarah Drummond helped me out when I got into the BBC. Uh, John Simons helped me with my last gig in Century. And then a long list of people, particularly John Bradford, in terms of just taking a chance on me to set up something like Ignite. And it goes on. And there's, there's always that list, and we always have it. I'm not sure we always take the time to just reflect on it and consider how we can do the same for someone else. But everyone's got that list, I think, when you stop and think about the people who gave you the opportunities when they didn't necessarily have to. And I've got a longer list than most, I think, of people who've helped. Yeah. I, would, I would agree. It's it's important to to remember those that helps you uh, along the way. You know, take time out to say thank you if you can, but certainly to to, to give give those thanks back by helping other people, um, as 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 you did as well. 
Um, and you obviously have helped a lot of people um, along the way because it, it ended up as a trip to Windsor Castle, didn't it? Yeah, yeah, unexpectedly. So, um, there was a 10 year lead in for that, though, surely. <laughs> it wasn't quite 10 years, but it was definitely five. So, I thought it would be fun um, one day <laughs> when the honors list was announced. To, and then this is this is the art of it, not tell everyone I had one, but let everyone draw the their own conclusions that would lead them to believe I had one. So I went onto Facebook uh, in 2015, I think, and said, um, thrilled to bits, um, thank you for all your support, whoever you are, and then linked to the news story about the OBEs. And so I didn't say it, but everyone jumped to the conclusion. Unfortunately, that included my mum, who I hadn't told and at the time I was on Facebook, I'm not now, but I was on Facebook. And so she just phoned me up and it was like half past midnight when she'd seen this. And I had to explain that, no, it was a complete lie, but <laughs> it was a brilliant joke. And so every six months, whenever the new honors list came out, I would do exactly the same thing, including the one year when I turned it down, which devastated some people. And so I ended up after five years of having this really interesting mix of people who were in on the joke because they'd seen it before, people who weren't in on the joke um, and didn't believe it and people who weren't in on the joke and thought it was real and so by the time it actually happened um, nobody believed it either way and everyone just thought it was nonsense and people had to go into the registry and look it up and, and see that my name was actually there uh, and for that I despise the Queen for killing off what was probably Twitter's best and most famous longest running gag so I'm <laughs> I'm sad she died. She was very old, but she did also just mess up what was what 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 had a lot of life in it. I think I could have still <laughs> been doing that there. Well, uh, all right. Now you've got your OBE, of course. We could start spreading the stories about your knighthood, which 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 must be pending. I, I kind of the thing is the thing is, Dave. I don't want to be too ambitious. You can also <laughs> at the CBE, uh, and there are some people who have like one and then the next one. And I'll tell people that the CBE is only for posh people, and I'm clearly working class. And the MBE, if you've got an MBE, if you're listening and you have an MBE, it's nice, but it's it's not a proper medal, is it? It's, it's <laughs> of, no, that's what the M stands for. Whereas the OBE is actually probably something uh, proper and sophisticated. But now I'm thinking, do I just do I just start the gag about the CBE and go for that and see if that happens? Uh, not sure, not sure. We'll, we'll we'll think about it. But it's nice. I mean, genuinely, seriously, it's it's nice to be recognized for that i think there's another two dozen people who deserve similar um because again i wouldn't have got anywhere in life if people hadn't gone out the way to help me um so yeah it's it's a nice it's i'm looking at it now it's it's in a cupboard it's a nice thing to have uh and the certificate signed by the queen and prince philip is in the spare spare toilet uh the downstairs toilet um because there's a salon it's the throne room you see it makes sense it absolutely makes sense absolutely does does working class and having a spare toilet go in go in the same sentence no but that's the thing that's the thing john when i was a kid i remember the there's a guy at sixth form college i went around his house for lunch one day and he had a downstairs toilet and i remember thinking <laughs> Posh. But yeah. I used to think the same thing about people in terraced houses because they had like a front living room, then a back one. And I thought you've got two because I grew up in a house with one and it had the staircase and upstairs. So that was wild. So yeah, I'm I'm still still slightly slightly in awe when people have ensuite uh, bathrooms. I still think oh you're posh. That's nice. 
I think I remember the moment I became posh. I was living in a maisonette, and that that just sounded posh. <laughs> and I and I also owned a, a garlic crusher, which was like you know that was yeah, that, that was it. <laughs> Easy now. And now, now you're fine mouth, and you're a CEO, and you're a kind of big deal. It's just you're not working. Clive. Get out of here. Pull me back. Pull me back. Yeah, he's he's, he's too posh for me. Is John too posh for me? Um, right, time's moving on. It's interesting, though, really on that, it's interesting that there's a little bit of, it's not shame, but when you when you, when you you aspire, or when anyone actually in, in the UK aspires to do slightly better than the working class roots, they kind of get dragged back in. And you see it, you see it all the time. Someone moves away from the Northeast and they they, they do pretty well. It's like, ooh, look at yeah. you, you're posh now. It's like, no, I just went somewhere for a job and maybe yeah. travel. Anyway, sorry, David. Uh, I, I remember back in. Um, I agree. Back back in the days when the the minor strikes when I was uh, living uh, living in Leeds or just outside the Leeds, and uh, I was actually playing in a football team, uh, most of whom were minors. We were down the pit, um, and they were brilliant. They were frightening even when they kicked off, kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, they were a really really good team to play with. And then the minor strikes were on, and um, I'd 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 left school and I'd started my career in NetWest Bank, so I, I was a little bank boy. Pumped. And I always remember one day, I, I cycled up the train station. Uh, I was living in Selby, cycled up the train station, left my bike there, got the train into Leeds, came back. There'd been a riot through Selby. My bike had been trashed by my teammates. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, guys. So, so that's how that's how working class I am. Yeah. 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 Um. Anyway, so um, you're working at um, or, or um, you have a company now called Team House. You 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 latest startup. You've got sixty seconds to tell us a little bit about that. Oh, that's difficult because we haven't launched yet. We're still finding the words and the language to describe it. But very briefly, um, if you're a business and you have employees, you have processes. The very first one you absolutely have is things like payroll. Um, but then as time goes on, you probably need to start managing their holidays. You need to start thinking about benefits and policies. And it's just bleh. And the thing is that no matter how many new businesses are started, every business needs to do this from scratch. There's nothing out the box where you can just pick up a bunch of this stuff and it just kind of works. And it's it's literally identical in every business, regardless of what they build or what services they do. These kind of things are identical. And the bigger challenge comes when, when the business starts scaling and you go from two or three employees to 10 to 50 to 100. Because these you you build these processes for when you've got small numbers and they don't scale when you, you have 100 employees. And you end up spending thousands and thousands of pounds on SaaS. And there's just, there's no one way. And ultimately, business admin, it doesn't, it doesn't help you grow the bottom line, but everyone's got to do it. And so Team House is a way to try and make all that administrative burden simpler and more affordable by building better tools for employees and for HR people and ops people but also trying to bring them together so we can start automating them. So we take very monotonous, repetitive tasks and we start turning them into automated uh, workflows and processes. So that's the big idea. That was exactly 60 seconds, maybe. Um, that's the big idea. It's very, very hard to do. It's hard to pick a place to start. And so that's what we're doing at the moment. We, we've got some ideas about where we start with that. And we're just trying to to see if they work in practice. Do we have any ideas in terms of a launch, in t- timescale for a launch? No, none at all, Dave. 
we might we might find it, we can't do it. It's too hard, and we just yeah. we pivot into cheese sandwiches, which everybody likes. Absolutely, and yeah. we have, we have no no problem selling at all. Yeah, uh, <laughs> mine with Branston, please. Okay, um, we 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 or or Marmite even like Marmite no, has made me the man I am today. Yeah. Wind it up. Okay, yeah, we'll wind it up. Um, so, um, yeah, before we before we go, uh, and apart from not eating Marmite, do you have any last words of wisdom for our audience, Paul? Um, there was a journalist uh, at The Guardian um, called Simon. Didn't know him very well, but I chatted to him a little bit. And he passed away six or seven years ago. And he was on a... He basically was dying, and he knew it for a long time. And I remember him on a podcast... And it, it, it just, it stays with me and I try and remember it when I'm stressed or when things aren't going my way or when I'm worrying about the world or my children or anything else. And he said, the secret to life is you're lucky to have it. And that was it. Whatever stresses and strains you find yourself in, however difficult the world is, this is it. And you kind of, you've got it once. And it's up to you to find a way to make the most of it. And that's, that's different. That's difficult sometimes. Not all of us have the same privilege, not all, all of us born in the same environment, but we kind of get one shot. And I think that's really obtuse, but um, I kind of try and live by that and, and just make sure I don't get too caught up in the minutiae of the world, because it's very easy to do that. I try not to watch the news too much or read too much of the news, because you can find yourself, you can just find life passing you by. You can find yourself doom scrolling on Twitter or Facebook for hours. And you've just got to lift your head up and, and recognize that this is it. And I think it's an age thing as well as you get a little older. I think once I hit 40, that recognizing my own mortality, I'd kind of seen a bit of that when my, my dad passed. But, but when I hit 40, it was like, right, halfway now, this is, what, what do I make of the second act? And I need to make the absolute most of it. And yeah, yeah. So that's it. Took me a while to figure that out, but that's what I'm trying to do. I think that's perfect advice, and I totally agree. You can be angry and scared all your life, then you die, or you can be happy and fulfilled, and then you die. You know which one you'd yeah. rather be. Okay. okay. Yeah. yeah. Right. We'll call it quits there then. So thanks very much, Paul. Your time is really, really, very much appreciated. Thanks, Dave. Cheers, John. Yeah. Thanks, Paul. That was brilliant.